Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and joining the show today to discuss the penultimate round of the NatWest Six Nations are Ireland's Paul Wallace, Scotland's Scott Hastings and Wales' Rupert Moon. The England's women coach, Simon Middleton, will reflect on the Red Roses' one-point defeat to France, plus Nigel Owens will take us through rugby's lows. But first, I'm joined here in the studio by former England and Lions fly half, Rob Andrew. Hello, Rob. Hi, Brian. Well, first of all, let's congratulate Ireland. Outstanding tournament so far, and they moved to second in the world. We'll be going through what went wrong with England and all sorts of other things as we go through this show. First of all... Bear in mind, England gave away, yet again, a rash of penalties. Uh, I think it was 15 this time. But half of those, at least, came from when they had the ball. And you saw this writ large. It was interesting, because I was saying this to Paul O'Connell during the game. He said, the best way to approach a jackling player, especially one who's big as Matteo Bastogne or Camaro, who's very big as well, he said, you don't let them get in the jackling position. As they're going down, you hit them. You target them and get them out of the way. He said, if you can't do that, you've got to have two people trying to leave them off the ball from both sides. He said, if you get two people, you've got a chance. But if, for example, like happened twice on Saturday at least, the first player to react and go in as a clearing player is George Ford. Now, that's not his fault. He's nearest. He has to do that. But he can only do so much. He's not going to move someone who's as big as the two French players I've just mentioned. If he has someone who's simultaneously hitting the player from the other side, they've at least got a chance. But so many times the player who would have been or should have been the second player to hit simultaneously either didn't recognise in time that that was what they needed to do or if they did recognise it, weren't there quick enough. Leaving Ford manfully trying you know, to wrestle with the guy ineffectively. And of course, 1,000, 2,000, which is all referees count when you get isolated, by that time, you know, it's a penalty. So what I hadn't quite fully appreciated but do now is the way in which the breakdown deficiencies are contributing to the number of penalties as well. And that, bearing in mind Eddie Jones was forewarned and said they'd been working very hard on the breakdown, was the most disappointing aspect of the whole game for me. Yeah, and actually, it, it's, everything comes back to international rugby, doesn't it? Doing doing the simple things well all the way through. And actually, at the moment, Ireland, above all sides, are just doing the simple things really well and really efficiently, and they're, and they're executing brilliantly. I, I was watching the game on the TV on Saturday, and actually, you could see on so many occasions, when the pass was given to the ball carrier, before the ball carrier even made contact, you said, we're going to lose this ball at the breakdown. Because the support players either weren't that they just weren't close enough. Yeah. So again, doing simple things well. If you're taking the ball into contact and you know the opposition are going to attack the breakdown, because clearly Scotland did and France are very good in that area. Your setup in terms of who's going in with the ball carrier, you need two players almost latching on in sort of old <laughs> bit old school. Mm. But you've got to protect that ball and the ball carrier. You leave that ball carrier exposed, which is what happened on numerous occasions. 
it, the ball, you, you could see it was going to happen before it happened because it didn't matter who was, it almost doesn't matter who is there to clear out. If they're too late, you can't mm. shift a camera or a bastero. Yeah. And it's just those, Ireland just look comfortable in their own skin the way they're playing. England were a year ago, 18 months ago, and for some reason they now they now don't look as comfortable in what they're trying to do. And and they in no particular aspect of the game, despite still being in the game on on uh, on the weekend, you know, a, a year 18 months ago, you would have expected England to come out of Paris with a win. Now you're sort of thinking it just doesn't look like it's going to happen. Well, they maybe should have done with both seats as Strange oh, aberration of a kick. Why did he not just kick that off sideways, backwards? I don't care what go, what goes through players' minds. Actually, nothing on that occasion. But the, the the carrying aspect, because I've been for a long time saying, I remember really seeing this with Eddie Jones about the Australian forwards, who, whatever you think about them, uh, as carriers, are some of the best in the world for this reason. Their pods of three that take it up are quite close together, and that leaves them with the option of taking the ball in from the first receiver and clearing, or offload in or out, very close to the contact, or the either drag-back ball, which Vunipola did and Sinclair did to lesser effect later on. Yeah. But they've got options because they're all in the right place, but all those three are open. When the space is such as you identified with England, you don't really have many of those because even if the ball comes back as an offload, they're... You know, they're not flat, so they're not getting over the gain line straight away. The drag back is not as effective because players just shuffle on. And when it comes to clearing, as you said, they are that split second and that two metres crucially away from where you need to be to stop the, not the initial tackler, but the players around there from getting in and contesting the ball. And this is a problem which, well, it has to be solved because everyone is now aware that England have this deficiency and that is what they're going to target. So it's not as if it's a problem that's not going to happen again. Uh, and we'll see against Ireland. And, and Paul O'Connell was very clear about this, that in provincially and with uh, Joe Schmidt with Ireland, they are drilled that the nearest two men have to get in there as potential support players or for an offload or whatever, but the nearest two, whoever they are, they've got to get there and they've got to get there together. But that's not new, is it? No, it's not. I mean, having support players around the ball carrier um, in the right place to either support or rip or clear or, or to be a receiver if, the, if, a, if, a, ball, if a forward wants to pass it on, you, st- you need players around the ball and England don't have enough players around the ball in attack. And, and this, you know, is sort of goes back a little bit to attacking shape and you know I know people don't like to talk about attacking shapes but you need attacking shape in the modern game because if you get exposed by being one out and it looks like England too many times with the forwards are just literally on their own one out not not particularly moving quickly onto the ball either Mm -hmm. but when you're running into such brick walls defensively and if you've got two or three people defensively over the ball before the attackers get there to support the ball carrier, you will lose that ball. It'll either get stripped or you're going to have to give a penalty up to stop the ball being stripped. So that sort of comes back a little bit to the shape and and where the players are in their attacking sort of formation, if you like, and, and, and making sure that, as Ireland do particularly well, they look after the ball and they search for space and they're patient with the ball... And and then they'll find something at the end of it. And that's when things can open up. 41 phases they took before the drop goal. Now, I know that was a bit exceptional for Ireland against France in that first game. But in all of the games, when Ireland have the ball, they look comfortable with it and they don't look like losing it. Well, you saw that fact in the fact that the Scottish back row, who had been conspicuously successful against England, were of limited you know, had limited effect on the game because the players were there to support and, you know, you weren't allowed as a second or third man because the ball was already got sealed yeah. and the player who would have been the jackal was already taken out of the way. Attack coach, England don't have a full-time attack coach. Should should they have one? 
Yeah, it's looking more and more like they should. Um, when you look at, they, they did have a little bit. They've had um, Glenn Eller doing some stuff um, in the summers when they've been on tour. I think he went to Argentina. He was definitely with England in Australia in 2016 when they played some extra, you know, some very very good rugby. So it does look like um, th- their shape and 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 what they're doing in attack looks a bit cluttered, and it looks like people are either not in the right place or. They're running too far sideways or a ball carrier. At this level, a ball carrier should never get left on his own. And and that's because either the players are not recognising what the next play is or um, you know, th- there's not enough shape to their attack. And, and that's the balance here is how structured are you? And Ireland are very structured with Joe Smith. There's no doubt about that. Um, but they're very good at it. And that gives them confidence. And then... When they keep the ball for so many phases um, through through good structure, that allows Murray and, and Sexton to then go f- find out where those holes are. And England aren't giving themselves that opportunity at the moment because they're not going through enough phases to allow. When they do, they are dangerous. And actually, they're still, you know, they created a few chances. Um, I mean, quite frankly, they should have won the game at the end. They had a five on one at the end of the game. But at the moment, they're not keeping the ball long enough to either put pressure on the opposition or to find that those spaces where a year ago, 18 months ago, they were doing that. You know, the maddening situation again of, you know, a cut-out pass to the, out, the most outside player, which makes the mind up of all the defenders, you know, as soon as that happens, everyone drifts on and they can look inside if they need to, yeah. to whether the ball's going to come back rather than putting the ball through the hands, making defenders stay, and then making the decision later on. And that, to me, is such a simple error uh, that shouldn't be, at that level, you know, be repeated. And unfortunately, we've seen that. Now, Laws is out, Hughes is out, so there will be changes. Don Armand has finally been called up. I can't see the point in bringing Armand into the squad if you don't play him. I just can't see the point, so... For me, that would you know, be a definite, and we will see how effective he can or can't be, which will have the benefit also of moving Robshaw presumably back to six, where he is very effective, uh, and maybe Simmons at, uh, at eight. So, But yet again, that will be a, a back row that's makeshift. Yeah, I'm not sure they're going to, I'm not sure they'll be playing Armand at seven. I mean, he's, he's really a, a six as well, so you're probably making a, you're probably making a call between. Armand and Robshaw, I would think. Haskell's now back in the mix. Um, so you could go back to probably the best two flankers that Eddie's had in his time have been Robshaw at six and Haskell at seven. Um, and Haskell did make a, a difference when he came on. Um, you still got the problem at eight. Simmons is, is probably shoo-in shoe at eight because he's the only one left. Um, so there's still that balance that isn't quite right. And, you know... We had this debate last week. I think it's unfair on Chris to play him at seven. Mm. You know, we saw that through the 2015 World Cup, and and now we're repeating that same mistake. Really, um, he's an outstanding six at international level, mm. and and he he allows others around the England forwards to play in their rightful positions. Well, Lee Jones has already said that if Dylan Hartley does recover, then he'll be playing. I thought line out throwing aside that Cowan Dickey, when he came off the bench, showed that he added stuff. I'm now of the view that this has run its course. There's loyalty and blind loyalty. Uh, and Dylan's form is just not good enough at the moment to justify that. I just don't... Get, bearing in mind, it wasn't lost because of Captain C on Saturday. So that is a, a factor which I think is out of the equation. And when you see people like Dan Cole and whatever, who was late on a lot of things and so on, isn't moving people, he isn't putting them under pressure in the scrum, and Sinclair comes on and he's at least carrying the ball. I can't see why, again, irrespective of the amount of caps and experience these people have got, you wouldn't now want players who are doing something different. If they're not dominant in their primary role, and Cole has been, but not for a while, then I don't see what else that brings you now. 
Well, we we again we said it last week, isn't it? There's a sort of selection crossroads here around some of these players, um, and, and it's loyalty versus you know moving forward, and this is what Eddie now has to decide. Mm. He has to decide where some of these players have taken the team to. Can he see them still contributing? And you're not just talking about for another week. You're talking about contributing for another 18 months. Exactly. Which is a very, very long time in in any sport. But in international rugby, it's an absolute age. And we've seen some of these players sort of start to drift off over the last six months, probably. Mm. Um, less, even. So that's a big call now, selection-wise, to... to Decide the direction of travel of of almost another England team that Eddie's got to got to build um, because you know God forbid we don't end up in the classic sort of Aussie claims that they had when we were playing you know we're good at peaking in between World Cups yeah. um, which is not where you want to be. Well, uh, let's move on to the champions, deserved champions. Actually, the proponents of bonus points, and I was one of them. I don't think we envisage that it might turn out that because of that system, the championship was over before the final fixture, law of unintended consequences. But it is, and, you know, rightly so. Let's speak to uh, the former Ireland prop, Paul Wallace. Paul, champions, um, coming to Twickenham on St. Patrick's Day, you must be very confident they can c- compete the Grand Slam now. I'm very confident, Brian. Um, really? We've seen a lot of England, England sides come to, to uh, Dublin confident and come back with their tails between their legs. I'm sure this English side would love to, to ruin the party for Ireland, you know, after being um, dethroned from the championship. 11 straight wins, best ever run of uh, results. Undoubtedly, um, by some way, actually, the form team of the championship, where, where are England going to hurt you? Yeah, I, I think we've been the, the former side um, to in, in sco- uh, try score than that, but we haven't exactly been the most creative side. You know, it's been um, very, very accurate side. And Joe Schmidt, uh, I think, as a coach, he just gets, you know, everyone makes the right decision. Now, they might have lost a, a few balls at the breakdown against Scotland to a pretty, you know, Watson was on fire there. Again, I think he's been excellent in the Six Nations for Scotland in that area. But by and large, besides that, and maybe our, our back three defence, especially the stockdale Kearney combination on the left, um, they, they've been a very difficult side to break down. We've been playing quite risk-free rugby, getting a lot of intercepts, you know, using the mall and one-out runners and then just some clever plays. I think we've, uh, even though we've been running in a lot of tries, uh, back here in Ireland, I think, you know, we talk to most people and say we haven't really, we played very accurate, um, good pressure rugby, we've controlled games. But have we played with a lot of flair? Not really. Uh, and we've always been a bit anxious, I guess, going to Twickenham, um, where you get you know good, hard, fast turf. And uh, we know the, the potency of the English attack out wide. But, um, you know, we were talking at the start of the, the championship, pre-championship, who, who are favourites. And it had to be England at home for the last game. But uh, they, Ireland have gone on one tangent and uh, England in an opposite tangent. And uh, very disappointing, actually, with England's performances and uh, a lot of players... There, they, they, they just didn't have the same sort of fire that we've seen in the last couple of seasons. And I think maybe missing the, the front football that Vunapola, Billy Vunapola gets you and uh, maybe no one to really, you know, the contest, the breakdown, the balance of the back row. I think that's one of the areas that's probably that, w- that we'd have spotted that, um, you know, differs this England side from, from sides in the last couple of seasons. OK, well, that's a fair point. But conversely, what have Ireland got that the rest of the teams in the tournament are missing? Leadership, I think, is one big thing. Uh, Conor Murray, in particular, has been outstanding. Um, He's just around the base of the scrum. Uh, he, he's such a poacher, a bit like the great use van der Vestesen in his, in his heyday. Uh, and you've got Sexton at 10 as well. I think that combination, you look at the back row, the, the Omani standard, it's great leaders within it. But also, coming into that is some great young talent. You know, the likes of Tyg Furlong, who's come from nowhere at the start of last season, you know, to 
probably the best tight head prop in world rugby. You've got the likes of Keane Healy and McGrath, you know, uh, going for, for, for loose head position. Yeah, you've got the likes of James Ryan coming in from nowhere, uh, big performances again. And, and the, the squad, I think, it's not just the 15, but the squad. And you look at, especially at 13, Ringrose being the, the third 13 to be used in a championship. And, you know, all of them, probably man of the match appearance I would have given it probably to Ringrose I thought he was, he was outstanding first, first game back um, so the depth there is really pushing every other player there and a lot of the experienced players really know that they've uh, outside of one or two key players they've really got to raise their game and you've seen that you know from players like Toner and that that, that they, they really are being pushed and pushed and uh, you know for a country I would a small playing population like Ireland, uh, relatively to, to the likes of England and France, um, the quality in the squad and the depth, I think, is huge. And I would nearly go as far to say as maybe stronger than than, than both England and France uh, when you when you scratch under the surface and pick up injuries. Hi, Paul. It's Rob here. How are you? Hi, Rob. Good. Um, I mean, just looking, and we've been watching Ireland very closely. And I I, well, I said a couple of weeks ago, I think you know, the whole Connor Murray, Johnny Sexton thing at the moment and with the, the experience through the side. Um, and I know you haven't got this Six Nations out of the way yet, but there must be real hope here about the World Cup. And I know it's 18 months away, but, you know, there's, there's some real quality world-class players in this island side. Uh, there are. Uh, one thing I would be worried about, though, is you were talking about that flair and... Uh, you know, creating tries. You know, obviously, like the Stockdale getting a lot of intercept tries. Yes, we're you know through them all and that. Um, but you do feel if you're going to come up against New Zealand, do we have the ability to score? You know, you, you typically need to score at least four tries to beat New Zealand. Um, uh, and you know where where we're going to do. I, I think we need to improve a bit and maybe in some of our attacking play. Uh, and that it's a bit sim- simple but very accurate, and we do keep the ball very well. Um, but going to the World Cup and with the young talent, I think that's coming through. I think it'll be the first time we'll be going there as, as real contenders. You know, we're, we're now what second in the world rankings, and you know, I think rightly so in a, on a run of eleven games. Um, yeah, I think there's uh, this is a side that has the potential. Um, because of the, I think the, the young players coming through and the de- is really getting the best out of some of the experienced players, and of course the Irish system as well, where in a World Cup years we'll be able to uh, rest some of the senior players a bit more than than some other countries. One thing uh, I've always felt, and I, I do think it's an issue for Ireland, is look, whatever you like to pretend, you are favourites at Twickenham, and rightly so because of of the way you've been playing. And this is the point. Ireland have never particularly performed as well as they should do when they've had this favourites tag on them. But at some point, they're going to have to accept that, yes, they deservedly are favourites for whatever uh, game it is. And yes, if they play to their fullest extent, yes, they should win and put that pressure on themselves because you can't much longer go on pretending that actually you're a small nation and we're just doing as well as we can. And now number two, deservedly so, and when they make that sea change in attitude and are comfortable with that, as the New Zealanders have been for a long, long time, then that will be a shift to me um, that's, that, that is the final one. Uh, are they capable of doing that? Yeah, well, you're, you're certainly bang on in my era and, you, and your era. Ireland was always a, a side that could shock a team, uh, you know, when we were underdogs, but any expectation and, and we faltered. Uh, I, you know, we needed that little chip on the shoulder, a bit of hunger, I guess, and a, a lot of Celtic sides, I guess, have been quite similar of the same issue. Uh, but when you look at the, the Irish side now, I think under, under Joshua and, and the whole coaching staff, which, you know, used to be at the, at the breakdown, Andy Farrell, et cetera, Greg Freak, it, it, it's the accuracy. It, it's, it's, all, it's all so broken down the game. I don't think they, they, they will be thinking of the totality of, of winning the game going in, but it's all just a matter of process. Um, I think a bit of that has come out, out of the game. It's so broken down to, to specific skills and specific roles and jobs and just doing those um, perfectly accurate, accurately, which <laughs> takes a bit of the romance out of the game, for sure. But it, it's the way Ireland have been playing. It, you know, the confidence they have now um, is it, certainly way up there. I, I, I guess over the last you know, decades, the, the, the likes of Munster, Leinster uh, have been so successful at club level as well. And that really 
generated a lot of confidence in in Ireland and, and Irish teams from from that success at club level. Uh, so I know I, I don't think they're too far away from um, you know having that sort of belief that that the likes of New Zealand would have had or England when they were having their their run there for a couple of seasons. Paul, congratulations on your countryman's behalf. I know you weren't playing, but you must have been delighted. It should be a great contest coming up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Time now to speak from a Scottish perspective. And who better than the former Scotland and Lions centre, Scott Hastings. Hello, Scott. Hi, good evening. We've got all the old boys on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all gets all together. Uh, Gregor Townsend saying they perform miles better. The chances went a bit begging. What do you think of his assessment of that? I think, obviously, everybody's talking about Scotland's accuracy. They did create opportunities against uh, Ireland and they failed to take them. And when you also, you know, Scotland gave away an interception try and lost tries on either side of half time. It was, it was a disappointing performance. There's, you know, after Scotland got off to such a bad start against Wales, there's been gradual improvement against France, a very good victory against England. But, you know, Scotland, well, they've only won six fixtures away from home, Brian. And, since the start of the Six Nations. And unfortunately, if you've got chances against some of the top nations in the world and you fail to take them, you, you, can't, you can't win games of international rugby. And Scotland just don't have that clinical edge within their high-tempo, uh, high-risk type of fluency within their game. And they're just going to have to strike that balance um, when they take on teams to understand that, that when they get the chance, they need to take them. Well, they're going to face Ireland in the World Cup. Will you both be away? Um, do you think that will make it a more more even contest, or have uh, the Scottish team still got? I hate to use this phrase, but lessons to be learned. Yeah, no, you, Brian, you're absolutely right. There are lessons to be learned, and, and this process of Scotland trying to get back onto a winning platform started two or three seasons ago with Vern Cotter. He brought a confidence and a, a game style within to the Scotland team. Players had got used to losing and um, Vern Cotter brought a structure and an understanding within the way that Scotland could play. He, he got off to a kind of slow start. In um, fact, I think he got off to a wooden spoon start. Um, but, you know, gradually they, they improved. You know, last year was probably one of the most successful years with three home wins. But the, the away form was poor against France. And, of course, there was an absolute hammering against uh, England in last year's championship. But I think everybody recognised that Scotland have turned this corner and they're becoming a, a competitive team. But I think they've yet to find out how to manage a game. And, you know, we're just you know, hearing about Paul Wallace and the style and understanding that Ireland, Ireland's rugby players have put together under their coaching team with Joe Smith. And, you know, it's maybe not the most um, ambitious style, but by goodness, they're a devilishly difficult team to, to beat. And, and, and that confidence has brought you know, an air of you know, back-to-back wins within this championship. And you know, they've got used to winning and they understand how to manage a game in pressure situations. And you, know, you look back at Ireland you know, throughout this championship and they've perhaps not been at their best, but by goodness, they've taken their chances. Scott, hi, it's Rob here. I, I I thought Scotland played pretty well in Dublin, actually. I mean, it was, I really enjoyed the game. And, mm. and But for three left-to-right passes that were taken out of either out of your book or mine, I'm not sure which one of us had the worst left-to-right hand pass, but, you know, three three accurate left-to-right passes, they would have scored four outstanding tries in, in Dublin. Um because they created and they did create a lot of things, and I think what you've just been talking about, you know, just learning when to play and when not to play, that's going to come if they keep playing the way they are, and clearly with Gregor in charge, they will. Um, and if they just get those decision-making bits and those accuracy bits at that pace, um, you know, they've got they've got some good players there, and it, oh. and it was really exciting. I mean, I was at I was up at Murrayfield as well, which was. Was uh, not a great experience for an Englishman, but it, 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 there's something happening there. And actually, you said it; you, you can see that happening over the last two or three years. And, and it's good for it's great for the championship. No, no, it is. And 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 Gregor, as we know, has got that ability to sort of bring out the best that attacking flair that he had as a former player 
and also you know his understanding of how to play different styles of rugby. And it's trying to get that balance and game management in where it, when it's on, it's on. But other times, they've got to bring in a more accurate kicking game, the pick-and-drive play, which maybe wasn't as evident um, on Saturday. But you'll, you'll, you'll remember, I'm actually left-handed. So my left-to-right pass was actually my strongest. <laughs> Give me a right-handed pass, right-to-left. I couldn't pass in that direction. So these things have to be worked on. And, and without any shadow of doubt, you know, Brian was mentioning there about these two teams will meet in the Rugby World Cup in 2019. Now, Scotland will have to, well, they'll probably have about, what, between 12 and 18 international matches between then and now. Now, that's, that's a lot of international rugby to get under your belt to, to hone this style of rugby that Gregor's got. And again, you look at the bench that Scotland had, there was a lot of concerns about potentially their quality of their of their scrum and their forwards, mm. but somehow Dan McFarland, who's the forward who's the forward coach, has really brought a, a, an air of confidence within there. When you consider, you know, WP Nell was on the bench, Xander Fagerson, the tight head, mm. has been out injured. Um, you know, you've gone in without Ben Toulis, but there's a lot of good quality players there, and he, gradually this squad environment is being managed, and it, it's encouraging. But I still appreciate. We're still a long way off, and and the history books still dictate that you know Scotland have only won six away internationals, four of which have been in Rome. So only two other away wins in what eighteen years of rugby. It's not exactly you know set the you know the heather alight, but uh, and in Scotland's next game against Italy, it's often been a banana skin game. But what Scotland need to do is forget about Italy, concentrate on their own playbook, and get that playbook right. Well, I was saying just as a final. Uh, question, uh, still to claim a bonus point, surely a bonus point victory is a minimum requirement from the weekend. Oh, absolutely, but you're not going to win the game in the first 20 minutes, Brian. And yeah, I think true. Scotland came out against Wales and they showed their, they showed their hands straight away and, and, and they tend to do that. Now, I would prefer to see a, a slightly better management and Scotland will win this game against Italy with a bonus point in the last 20 minutes, not the first 20 minutes. So yeah. it's important that they remain patient as they build themselves through this game and, it, and keep the utter focus and concentration because when it's loose and players don't concentrate, and that's what it boils down to, it's about player concentration. If they don't concentrate, then they'll scooper those chances. Scott, um, are you going out to Italy? I am. I'll be commentating once again with ITV and uh, looking forward to that. Good man. Nice to speak to you again. See you later, mate. Okay. All the best, guys. Cheers. Cheers, Scott. Well, I was down uh, in Cardiff. I think I upset quite a few Wales fans by make, simply making the point in the first half, and you've got to remember the timing of the tweet, that actually Wales weren't playing that well. And at the time I made that tweet, they weren't. Nevertheless, it did uh, cause a bit of furore. Let's have the comments of the former Wales scrum half, Rupert Moon. Rupert, are you there? I am indeed. Hello, mate. Uh, ten changes. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, still a comfortable win. So uh, which of the players do you think you are most pleased about uh, in the uh, much-shuffled uh, team? I think all 10 of them. I think it was uh, what people seem to forget was that the 10 players that came in, uh, bar, I think, two, um, had been finishing and closing out games through the autumn series and the earlier on in the Six Nations. You know, Elliot D has been... Uh, a, a revelation at hooker. I, you know, I, I'm loving seeing uh, George North back firing all cylinders, and it was great to see James Davis taking his opportunity so well and broadening the base of our back row power out, which is fab. Well, that point I was going to raise, James Davis, and that was out Navidi. You know, and you know, England would kill to have you know two of those options. Wales have arguably got four, haven't they? They have, you know, and. Um, we are a different team, um, growing and developing in the style which I know they've been. There's been an ambition to do over the last couple of years. People said, you know, in the most successful period of Welsh rugby that we played a laborious style in the ten years of Warren Gatland, but very successfully, he's gradually developing it. You know, and when this these teams, this Welsh team comes together, they have minutes, not hours, together to develop a style, and you've got to play to develop it, and you've got to get the whole group as in not only the 15, everybody singing on the same song sheet. And it, I think it helps that the Scarlets have kind of 
developed it quicker and faster, but still been an investment in the likes of Hadley Park still to be the centre and the fulcrum of it. One point that's come out for me is that under Gatland, when you saw a fairly restricted style, occasionally you saw what I consider to be the sort of innate Welsh skills, your ball in hand, fleetness of foot and so on. And now the emphasis has been changed. You're seeing this come to the fore because I've always thought that the Welsh players had that, probably more so than any other non-French nation. Sure. And now, you, now it's been released. What, what do you think about yeah, that point? You know, I can only talk about back in the early 90s when I was fortunate to have played a, for, for Flesley Scarlets and we played simple stuff, which is pass before contact and use the ball. And it has always been a, a challenge, and it, whether you play that in wet weather or you come up against a powerful team that is able to control possession. I think what Wales have done is played with what they, they had, as in the players of their, that ability and under Gatland and played winning rugby, uh, not particularly attractive, but very successful uh, with, with the players that they had. And the evolution over that period of time seeing the, the young players and the talented individuals in the group um, has given them the confidence to not rely on just like we had in the old days with Shane Williams' fleet of foot. Now you've got consistently, and it's the, the sweet spot, that Nirvana moment, when you see a, two props able to catch and pass and deliver timing and a hooker that not only likes running into people but also likes to offload as well before contact. And, it, and when they... Scarlets won that Pro uh, 14, uh, Pro 12 final. It was it was great to see from their own 22 playing football. And as you were, as you agree, it is something it's hard to defend because there is no pattern to it. You're relying on individuals to see what they have in front of them and just pass the ball. And uh, it's simplistic but very successful when it comes off. Rupert, hi, it's Rob here. How Hello, are you? Rob. Um, there must be a pretty buoyant mood in in Wales at the moment, is that despite Brian's tweet before half time on Saturday, which probably livened them up as well. But just in terms of the the regions and and as you say, some of the younger players coming through and this balance now, strength in depth, and seeing a bit of you know the old what we would call the Welsh flair just starting to emerge again. Yeah, it's it's cyclical as we all know. If we've all been around the block a long time, it does come in those three or four year cycles in there. The academy system in, in Wales is a, a successful tool for getting young players pushing through the system and giving the opportunities. You, you know, you you do rely on some teams being bold enough uh, to give them that chance, and, and a lot of the regions do. And it, it's just great to see that they're, they're getting their opportunity. And Warren Gatland does a presentation to ex-internationals at the start of the season, September, October time, and, and delivers his... Way and Rob Howley and Robin McBride of what they're going to try and do, and they talk about the developing game and the individuals and the broad group to try and get ready for that World Cup, which is obviously was in touching distance last time round. They want to actually grab hold of it this time round, but you have to have a broad base of players who understand the style of play. It's whatever that style of play is, if it's kick and chase, if it's defend, 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 whatever it may be. They've all got to get it, and the pleasing thing is November. It was tough, but a few more people got an opportunity in the Six Nations. I watched that England game. I was there, and I know which side I'd prefer to watch. Um, coming out of that, and you could kind of smell there was something afoot in that, in the fact that they were bold to the end without being carefree. And uh, it's just been a nice progression. And again, people think, oh, why is he doing 10 changes? But look at the minutes and the time that those guys have had on the field in those games in the autumn and in the Six Nations. It's confident mood that they can all get it and they've just got to stick with it and it's going to be tough. They're going to leave a lot behind, I guess, going to Argentina because the Lions boys must be fatigued and mentally shot. But going to Argentina playing the same way will really give you a test of character as well. I'm going to final weekend in pole position to finish Second, are you confident that that will be achieved? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's, uh, you know, we've, we heard from Scott earlier that you know, yes, Scotland will, will win that game. I do think the the stars have aligned uh, for Ireland on this particular occasion, and I think it'll it, it'll be a difficult experience for England to lose three on the bounce. But I think they'll probably, unfortunately, be better for it because they just need that shake-up. And and Wales, it's going to be one of those fantastic games where <laughs> it'll be a bit a bit seven aside, and it'll probably be something like thirty-eight, thirty-six in the end. 
But yeah, I think Wales will get it. Rupert, thank you very much. Good to speak to you. This was a very surprising weekend for the uh, women's tournament because you had a 22-15 away victory for Italy. You had a 15-12 away victory for Scotland against Ireland. And you had, slightly less surprising, but still uh, 18 France, 17 England. And a record crowd for a women's international in France, 17,440. Out of a crowd that could have been 20,000. The atmosphere undoubtedly played a point. Captain Sarah Hunter from England says it was a French lesson for the RFU. Um, Rob, promoting the women's game, you know, I th- let's be fair, the RFU have backed the women's game uh, with cash in a way that other unions haven't. Um, there's a limited amount you can do in terms of promotion, but is there anything else you think they could do to increase uh, the crowds? Yeah, look, you can always... You can always do more of course you can as with all women's sport it doesn't matter whether it's football cricket rugby I mean there's a massive move in in all women's sport Um, the RFU have put significant amounts of money into the women's game over a long period of time now and and the last couple of World Cups professional contracts for sevens players and fifteens players um, I think the the women's game is, is growing enormously these results show that and I think everybody expected a big big crowd in Grenoble uh, French women's rugby is is very strong. Uh, the World Cup there in 2014, which England won, of course, was a fantastic tournament. So um, I think it's great for the women's game to see Italy winning and and Scotland winning in Ireland. That's that's tremendous. Um, you know, so it's just going to go from strength to strength. Well, now let's speak to uh, Simon Middleton, the head of the England women's team. Now, Simon, how significant was the atmosphere? Uh, overall, in relation to the uh, you know the French victory, uh, I think uh, the the weekend was absolutely incredible. The the atmosphere in the stadium, the the crowd, uh, the the whole occasion was uh, was just amazing. You know, it took us back to uh, to Ireland and the and the World Cup final. Uh, yeah, it was it was a tremendous stage for the players to play on, and uh, you know, hopefully we. You know, we put a, a game on that has, has only helped to en- enhance the uh, the women's game. But in the World Cup, you're going to come, uh, you know, across significant games like this, which you will want to win. What do you need to do differently to make sure you get over the line? Well, I think uh, certainly if we were to look at the, this week's game, we had to take the chances that we created. We certainly created enough chances to, to win the game and, and certain areas of our game that have been very strong and very uh, fruitful for us sort of didn't, didn't, we didn't execute uh, as well as we wanted to on the day. So we had a number of chances, uh, you know, to, to, to drive to score that, you know, all of the days we've been absolutely clinical, uh, but the French had, had, you know their own strategies for dealing with that, and uh, and you know the managed to keep us down to one driving try, uh, and and then, and then we, and I think we made errors around uh, the middle of the field where we just didn't give ourselves an opportunity to put the French under under more pressure. So you know rugby's a game of pressure, isn't it? If you don't get enough on the opposition and they get more on you, you're gonna you're gonna struggle. So that's you know that's a real feature certainly of our review from this game and uh, and going forward and on how we can be more consistent with with putting the opposition under pressure. Not predicted, uh, but probably welcome, especially for them. What significance should we take from the wins for Scotland and Italy? Oh, I think, uh, you know, as Rob mentioned, it's absolutely huge uh, in terms of highlighting where the women's game is uh, internationally uh, to, to, for Scotland to get the, the first win. And that's, and that's been coming. You know, the, the, the horse with the, the last player of the game to Ireland last year, who was a very good side. Uh, you know, Shaman Rose done a fantastic job with, 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 with the girls in Scotland. And they're a real force to be reckoned with now and, all, and only going to get stronger. And similarly with Italy, you know, they, they've got their own brand of rugby and uh, the fans are very passionate and they're very passionate about the game. Uh, you know, as, as are the Welsh. So I think it's, it's a great reflection on on probably how uh, how much attention to detail and how serious all the nations are now taking uh, women's rugby and you know and that's certainly not just in in Europe it's it's worldwide with Australia the moves in Australia and New Zealand that have been made. Well, Simon, uh, 
if there's anything we can do to try and increase the profile and, and get more people watching, just let us know. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Very shortly, we'll be speaking to top rugby referee Nigel Owens, who had a week off from the Six Nations. I think instead he was uh, refereeing the Scarlet's uh, draw against Leinster. Before we speak to Nigel, Warren Gatland said that he didn't believe that it should have been a yellow card for Liam Williams. Now, when you look at the tackle, from one angle, it didn't look that bad. Uh, and that was a tackle when I said I didn't think there was much in it. When I saw it from another angle, I perhaps shouldn't have said that because actually there was contact above the shoulder to the head. But the one which I thought was difficult, and you've got I understand exactly why World Rugby doing this. They're trying to stamp out tackles that contact above the shoulder and are dangerous. But when you saw the uh, yellow card for Anthony Watson, it was a yellow card because it was above the neck and he made contact. However, when a player is in a position where they're diving for the line or at least lowering the body to drive for the line and you start off uh, your tackle when they are before they are in that lowered position and you make contact like that, I'm not sure what else you can do. I'm really not. I understand perfectly. It was the right decision. No complaints about that. Ironically, he'd have been better off letting him score because then he'd have had a conversion from the touchline instead of no conversion, which happens with the penalty right. But And also, he wouldn't have been, you know, sin bin for 10 minutes. As I say, by the letter of the law, absolutely right. But I do feel for players who are in that position because what are you supposed to do? I, I, to be honest, Brian, I don't think there's anything you can do because th- this is all happening so quickly. Certainly the Anthony Watson thing, when you when you just, you, the ball's up in the air, you're sort of looking, you're turning around, you're, you're backwards, you're trying to scramble in the corner to, to do something. You know, it's all happening so quickly. The player's sort of going down to the try line. Um, it, it is it is what it is. I mean, the the, the problem is now that there's, It'd be interesting to hear what Nigel has to say about it, but it's almost we've created a rod for our own backs in terms of in terms of protecting the player, protecting the head, trying to lower the tackle line to prevent any contact to the head, which is completely understandable with all the concussion issues going on and the potential injury. Um, but it, it's just it's very difficult. By the letter of the law, Liam Williams should have been sent off. Quite frankly, I mean that you, we've seen players sent off for that kind of incident. That was shoulder contact to the to the side of the head, neck area. Now, was it a sending off offence? No, it wasn't. I mean, of course, it wasn't in terms of what we what we understand about players' intent. But it's all about trying to get the players to adjust their height of tackle, which for a number of years now, has sort of risen up and up and up, and it's now slid above the shoulder. We're trying to get the tackle line down to protect the head. And it's just, it's it's never going to be eradicated. So you're going to get an Anthony Watson-type situation time and time again. And it's just, you know, it's it was a big moment. You know, a yellow card is, is, is a big issue. Well, we can now speak to uh, Nigel Owens. Hello, Nigel. Brian, good evening. You are? Hi. Yeah, I am. This is a situation which World Rugby, understandably, have been trying to lower the uh, tackle area and make it plain to players. If you go above the uh, the shoulder, then you run significant risk. But I just wonder, is there anything that you, for the situation where I described where, leave leave aside the particular Watson thing, but say, for example, you line up a, a tackle, and we all know if it's just five yards out, you're going to have to hit the guy quite hard to stop him going over. So you, you launch into it fully and he lowers his body or he dives uh, and you can't really adjust in the split second that you make. Is there anything that World Rugby can do to balance out the conflicting demands of not allowing contact with the head, but having some sympathy for players who find themselves in a very difficult... if not practically impossible situation of wanting to make a tackle but not being able to do so. Yeah, I, I think we... I think to be fair, we, I think we pretty much do that, I think. I think what, what you've got to decide, first of all, is has there been foul play? That's the first question you're going to ask yourself in a penalty try situation or whether you're dealing with a, yeah, um, um, a penalty, a yellow or a red card. The first question you ask yourself as a referee, right... 
has this player committed an act of foul play? And if he has committed an act of foul play, whatever that may be, a shoulder to the head, a, a high tackle, a, a trip, a, a boot to the head on the floor, whatever it may be, then you deal with the situation itself that arises from that. You also take into account then, what, what has there been? If there hasn't been any foul play, then, then it's a play on situation. So for example, if you have a player going in really, really ground, low on the ground, so he adjusts his height, say half the height of his body, and you make to go a genuine tackle, and then you happen to catch him high, then the ref will take into account well, has there been foul player, and there may not have been foul play. Or if there has been foul play, you will take into account that the player made a legitimate, uh, issue, um, a legitimate attempt to tackle, but because the ball carrier adjusted his height so much, it was unavoidable contact by the tackler. And they would deal with that then appropriately. So it may not be a card, it may just be a penalty because it still has been foul play. And that's the key thing you have to decide, first of all, has there been foul play? Now, if you're going to tackle high and your player adjusts his height a few inches, then you've gone in high. So you do not really take into account the adjust of the body then. But if you've gone in low to tackle and the, board, the player's ball cut has adjusted his height, half the height of his body, for example, considerably lower, and was unavoidable because you made a genuine attempt to make a genuine tackle, then you take all that into account. Yes, you do. Um, but if you're always high to start with, then the question is, was there foul play? It's irrelevant to the ball carry, what he does then, because you were always high to, to start with, and, and were you illegal to start with as well? So there are a lot of things that the referee will take into account. And, and if the referee deems there was no foul play, then, then, it, then you play on. It was just a rugby collision. There's no foul play, then it's play on. But if he, de- if he deems it to be foul play, then he will... Um, give the appropriate sanction and taking into account everything else then that goes with, with the foul play. So in, in making that decision, would this be uh, correct? The referee has to look at the challenge from the defending player and say to himself, if that uh, player had gone through with that tackle in normal circumstances, he would have hit the attacking player somewhere around the midriff or lower than the chest or not high, and therefore I consider that it wasn't an act of foul play. But anything above that, if it had still been high, then you take what comes. Is that fair? Yeah, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be far off. It still could be, you know, it still could be a high tackle if the player has adjusted his sight quite a bit because you've still tackled him around the neck or around the head. But then that would then probably still be a penalty if it's still an act of foul play, whether it was deliberate or not, because that's one thing is difficult for referees to decide, was it deliberate or not? So it could well still be a penalty, but the fact the height has been adjusted by the ball carrier dramatically, you take into account it's just a penalty and it's nothing more because of that. So you could still deem that to be foul play. You may look at the instance and say, well, there's no, there hasn't been any foul play here. This is just a rugby collision. So you play on. So the referee would decide that and take into, into account everything that happens then. Uh, just finally, when you're making this decision, um, is it the, I mean, the referee obviously has the sole and final say on this, but how much would you take into account uh, the opinions or would you actually seek the opinions of, say, an assistant who was stood next to you or the, the, the TMO in, in considering this? Yeah, the referee would have the final say, um, but you would have the conversation probably as a team of the officials, particularly if there's information given to the referee by the assistant referee. So mm-hmm. if that initial um, information is given by the assistant referee, then the, assist- the referee then would ask the assistant referee, okay, what are you seeing here? And, and then he would explain why and take into account. But the, the referee has a final say, but there usually is a communication between the both. And that tends to happen if... If there's a slight disagreement, so let's say that the, the referee is looking at something and he's thinking, right, to me, you know, this is a yellow card. And the assistant referee is thinking, but for me, it isn't. Then there'd be a conversation then where he may tell the, the, the referee, well, look, look at the actions of the ball carrier, which has contributed to this happening. 
which a referee may not have picked up but looking at it and the referee says all right okay i can see exactly where you're coming from yes the ball carrier did change his body height dramatically i can see what you're what you're showing me and then there may be a slight adjustment of of the decision but but at the end of the day the final decision will 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 be with the referee himself but you're out there now as as a team and we get together quite often as a team of officials and prepare for these games. So it, a lot of it is now is, is collective sort of responsibility when it comes to decisions like this. But yes, the referee is, he is in charge on the field and he will have the final, will have the final say on it all. Nigel, thank you very much. Where are you uh, next weekend? I am on duty for Wales, France on uh, Saturday, Brian. I'm doing the number four. I'm looking after the sin binnings and the substitutions and the timings and, and everything they got for for the game. So uh, I haven't been in Cardiff on a match day for, for quite a few years. So I'm looking forward to being part of, of the occasion there on, on Saturday. Great. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. All the best. Bye-bye. Very near the end of this podcast, the final weekend's fixtures, Italy versus Scotland, England versus Ireland, the big Grand Slam showdown for Ireland, at least, and Wales versus France. Very quickly, Rob, um, will Ireland get the Grand Slam? Um, I'd like to think not, um, to be honest. Um, and I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. That no, they I, will. I don't. And no, I think there's a lot of pride in this England team. I think, you know, there are some issues and some tweaks. I think selection will actually help. Um, and I think the injuries to the back row will actually help uh, England in, in terms of their selection. Um, so, no, I don't think it will be a foregone conclusion. England will have to play well and they'll have to up their game. But... You know, England will remember what happened in Dublin last mm-hmm. year. Uh, St. Patrick's Day at Twickenham, uh, Ireland to win a Grand Slam for the third time only in history. If that's not motivation for an England team to stop yes. Ireland, then I don't know what is. So, And conversely, the point I made to Paul Wallace earlier on, if Ireland accept the mantle of favourites, which they definitely are, whatever anyone says, and they come through that with flying colours, that is a big step on their de- you know, development. I'm not, they've already... Made huge strides to get to number two. But that's a psychological thing for me, and that will be massive for them. England, well, they could finish fifth. And yeah, well, if they lose, if they, they do, will. that will, well, the clamour for do something will will actually intensify. There's a limited amount of manoeuvre, but uh, I personally think it would be the right time because there's still in, enough time, albeit limited, to review the contribution or the involvement of some hitherto uh, stalwart players that have done good jobs still in ones, but if they're not doing it now and there's no prospect of them continuing in the future, then I'm sorry, you know, no one is sacred and there's time for changes. Well, England not lost three on the bound since 2006 mm-hmm. in the Six Nations. So, you know, that, that's what we said a week ago. These two weeks have enormous consequences. Uh, Wales, France... I think they'll have too much for them in the end, provided they match up physically and Wales have proved to be remarkably resilient in that regard. Uh, Faletau, tremendous game as captain, star player, uh, lots of options. I just think in the end they'll, they'll have too much creativity. Yeah, I think so. I think Wales have been, and I think it's been a great championship so far. You know, that had, had France beaten Ireland in that first game, which they probably should have done, the evenness about around the five nations, Italy aside, mm. has, has been has been fantastic. I and mean, I think um, I think France probably expended a lot of energy last week against England, a lot of physical and emotional mm. energy. And and if Wales are on their game, um, they they should win in Cardiff. And the hoary old subject: uh, if Italy register a seventeenth successive defeat, as I think that's almost certain, will their inclusion be seriously questioned? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure it will be yet. No, I don't um, think it will. Um, but... I, I don't think there'll be any any particular um, appetite for that. Um, it, it can't go on. But actually what's beginning to happen now is with the emergence of the Scotland side and Wales strength in depth, Ireland in particular, you know, they're getting left further and further behind. They're not actually closing the gap. Mm. And Scotland, the way they're playing, um, you know, they created all those chances in Dublin. So really in Rome um, they should win and they should win comfortably yeah. well that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact thanks to my co-host Rob Andrew and as always my producer Abby Patterson remember please subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free and that way you'll never miss an episode 
and please leave a review. We'll be back next week to see whether Ireland have finished the job, whether they do emerge not only as champions, but as Grand Slam champions. But for now, it's goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.